Good morning. It was suggested that I go a little more formal this morning because of communion. Pastor Trevor graciously then and there offered his robe. <laughs> and uh, we had one staff member say in a meeting this week, I so look forward to seeing Chad in a dress this weekend. <laughs> I haven't had a lot of practice with dresses as some of you may have seen. It's hard to walk upstairs. That's a treacherous thing. I almost uh, went face first. <laughs> uh, I, I had a few comments from staff and I'll take a few very gracious comments. Ruth, before the first service, she said, that is a beautiful black cape. <laughs> kind of felt like a superhero there. And my youngest, Izzy, after the first service, she ran up to me and hugged me. She said, dad, you're Harry Potter. <laughs> I'll take both of those. I'll keep them in my back pocket for today. We're in our series called Sacred Spaces and we are sharing in Holy Communion today. And I just wanted to ask you, are you hungry for the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you ready to feast on his word, feast on his presence and feast on his love? And I just wanna say this. I think that um, that's an important question to ask, but more importantly, do we know that G Jesus is more eager to feed us than we are to feast? He's more eager to forgive than we are to sin. He's more eager to seek and to save than we are to be found. That's the God that we come into the presence of this morning, a God who initiates, a God who speaks first, a God who starts, and we are invited to respond. And I'm thankful to that God. Can we pray and open up our hearts to him? Father, it's your text we submit ourselves to. It's your presence we long for. It's your love we so desperately need. Father, for those of us who have gone a bit wayward, draw us back. For those of us who are proud, humble us. For those of us who are hurting, give us comfort. Whatever we need, you know, speak through me now. And uh, may I be faithful and may we be faithful hearers. I ask in Christ's name, amen. And we're talking about sacred spaces. I uh, met my wife at uh, Columbia International University here in Columbia. I uh, was doing music and I needed to finish my degree. I started in Texas and I transferred to CIU and she was also a music major. So we met in those classes. We were good friends for about a year and a half until I woke up and uh, thought to myself, I'd like to be more than friends with that girl right there. And so we started to date. And one of our kind of rituals that we would do is after dinner, we would take a walk together and we would walk to a place called The Point. And uh, it was on the back of the campus, down a long road, the professor housing was there, beautiful trees, nice quiet road. And it kind of cleared into an opening on top of a hill where it overlooked the broad river. And there was a gazebo there and there was a wooden swing. And we would often uh, take long walks and we would sit at the point and the point became something sacred to us, something special to our relationship. It was where our love grew. In fact, when I accepted a position in St. Louis, I flew there and she still had um, uh, schooling to do before she graduated. And uh, I said to her, you know my intentions for this relationship and I'm committed to you and I'll see you soon. And uh, we did distance and there was no FaceTime or texting when we did distance. Can you believe that? And uh, we survived, barely, but we survived. And um, it was February and it was her birthday was coming up and I wanted to propose to her. And so I set up a, kind of a secret mission with her sister who was here and I flew in 
in and she picked me up and I sent Courtney, my, wa- my wife, uh, a package and said, this is your birthday present. And what I want you to do is go to the point because that's very special to us. And I want you to open your present there. And I want to be on the phone with you because it's a very special birthday present for you. And little did she know, I was kind of hiding off to the side in the woods. And so she gets to the point and she's on the phone and she opens up, uh, she unwraps the present in the box and there's actually nothing in it. And she's, how would you like that for a birthday present? And she said, well, what's going on? And she kind of looked around and I think it was dawning on her something is unique happening here and I kind of came walking out of the woods and we embraced and then I said some words to her which I will keep between me and her thank you very much and I got down on one knee and I proposed to her asked her to be my wife and she said yes and the point became even more of a special place for us it was a sacred space for us and we haven't got to yet but when we take our kids over to CIU we'll walk the same road we'll tell our story And we'll show them this sacred space. This is where mom and dad fell in love. This is where it all started. We have sacred spaces. We long for sacred spaces. We long for sacred spaces to help experience the transcendence, the divine, to help us get outside of ourselves, to help us experience, if you will, something bigger than ourselves. Humanity is incredibly religious. And I don't think it will go away as much as people want to say that. We're meaning makers. We long to ascribe meaning to people, to places, to events. We long to have interpretation. We ascribe meaning to these things. We say, this is special, this is unique, this is family, this is a one-time event. We, we marvel in awe at engagement or at a wedding ceremony. Our, our eyes are filled with tears at the birth of a baby and new life. These are sacred places, sacred spaces. Sacred spaces are soul spaces. They're where heaven meets earth. They're where the divine intersects with the human. They're where we experience and long to experience transcendence. They're soul spaces because God is trying to get our attention in these spaces, whether we recognize it that it's him or not. God has ascribed meaning. God meets us in sacred spaces. Think about it. Jacob met God in a sacred space at Bethel. Moses took off his shoes at the burning bush in the sacred space of Sinai, at the dedication ceremony of Solomon's temple. The glory of God, the Hebrew word for glory is kavod. It can can quite literally be translated heaviness. The heaviness of God, much like the fog this morning, filled the temple so much so that they couldn't sing. They couldn't preach. It was so weighty in that place. It was a sacred space. And throughout history, God has designated sacred space in order to confer unique grace. You like that? It rhymes. (laughs) The Protestant church, many denominations across the Protestant church have marked out two very sacred spaces. We believe all life is sacred. All experience in life is sacred from eating pizza to gardening to leisure to sex. It's all sacred. That's what the Bible teaches us. But not all life is sacramental. There are two sacraments throughout our history that we have looked back and said, these are unique times and circumstances and places and they are baptism. As we celebrated last week, 41 people baptized, placed into the community of faith. We made covenant with them and they with us said, hey, we're gonna help nourish each other's faith. And today, Holy Communion. 
also known as the Lord's Supper, also known as the Eucharist, which simply means thanksgiving. Here's the tension. I have a bit of tension, if I can confess, on giving a sermon about a sacrament. Sacrament is connected to the Greek word mysterion, and that quite obviously is where we get the English word mystery. And so in some very real senses, we are at a loss for words to say what happens in a sacrament and what it is. And that's the tension I find myself in in trying to talk about what is a sacrament and what does it do? Because I would argue this, a sacrament first and foremost is not meant to be explained, but to be received. If you hear nothing else, please hear that. It's not primarily meant to be defined, but to be trusted that God, because of his promises, does something in and through communion when we take of it. The church in the West, we love to think about things. We love to live in the life of the mind. The church in the East loves to live in the life of the body. They like to experience things. We may have something to learn from the church in the East. We have held up baptism and the Lord's Supper as avenues, if you will, lanes of unique grace where God meets us. Communion is where we feast and we feed on the presence, the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Now, we don't quite believe it literally is the body and blood of Jesus Christ, but we also don't believe that it's mere memorial, that it's just something that we mentally think about when we take. Somehow, mystically and mysteriously, we feast on the body and blood of Christ, and he fills us, and our faith is nourished in communion. C.S. Lewis put it like this. I love this quote. There's no good trying to be more spiritual than God. God never meant man to be purely spiritual creature. That's why he uses material things like bread and wine to put new life in us. And if baptism places people in the community of faith, perhaps communion places the life of Christ in the people of God. You see? I'm gonna read Luke 22, 14 through 20. My wife instructed me after the first service, you need to read slower. <laughs> Fine. <laughs> if you are able and willing, would you please stand for the reading of the word of God? Luke 22, 14 through 20. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you, keyword, Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks, another keyword, and said, take this and divide it. You catch the symbolism? Divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. The word of God for the people of God. I invite you to be seated. Blessing, thanksgiving, bread, cup, tearing, dividing, pouring out. It was lost on the disciples what it all was indicating. Sometimes it gets lost onto us. That's why sometimes we simply need to be reminded 
We need to be reminded what communion is. We need to be reminded what God's truth is. And so I'd like to just ask two simple questions for my talk today, and it may feel less of a sermon and more of an instruction. I admit that up front. But what is communion, and what is God doing in and through communion? I think sometimes... It's understandable that we as human beings want to focus on ourselves and we want to say, well, well what am I supposed to do? You know, what, what am I supposed to think about when I come to the table? What am I supposed to, what's my heart posture and my mind and my attitude? And I understand that. But I think more importantly, what has God promised on his side to do? What is God up to? Can we focus on him for a bit and what he will and is doing in and through communion? Maybe we can just get out of, out of the way just a bit to see the goodness and the greatness of God in and through communion. First of all, what is communion? It's a Jewish meal. It's a Jewish meal. We are entering into uh, the holiday season here in this country and just less than two weeks, we will sit down uh, and feast together over Thanksgiving. How many of you are looking forward to foods at Thanksgiving? Two people over here. Okay, now 15 people. Okay, all right. Everybody's looking forward to, there were like three people in the nine o'clock looking forward to Thanksgiving. Oh, come on. And my wife asked me the other day, she said, uh, so what are your, some of your favorite foods during the holidays. And I think I forgot this, but uh, it dawned on me as I was talking, um, they were all casseroles. It was like green bean casserole, potato casserole, breakfast casserole, like anything in a big dish with multiple layers of stuff. I'm game. I love that thing. I'm good with the turkey and ham and all the centerpiece, but that's just a, a, like something you dip in the sides. You know what I mean? And uh, we began to talk and anticipate what was going to happen during Thanksgiving. And you'll gather around a table. And we may not call it a ritual. We may not call it a tradition, but it's interchangeable. And you may have certain traditions that you and your family do. Maybe you have a large breakfast and then you eat Thanksgiving meal in the evening time. Maybe you have heavy hors d'oeuvres and eat a light meal. Maybe you eat and take a nap and watch football and then eat again. Uh -huh. Some of you nodding your heads. Whatever it is, it's something that is tradition for you. Something that you know and anticipate and look forward to. Communion was a Jewish meal. Have you ever noticed how many times in the Gospels Jesus liked to feed people? It seems like he really enjoyed feeding people. In fact, just a little uh, homework if you want it. Uh, not talking to students, obviously, because you don't want it. But uh, other people, if you would like to go back through the Scriptures and the Gospels and see how many times Jesus fed people and what tradition or ritual he did before he fed people. If you go back and see, you will often find he takes bread and then he does what? He gives thanks. He blesses it. And then he breaks it. You see this kind of formula repeated again and again and again when he feeds people. He takes bread and he blesses it and then he breaks it and he shares it. This is known among Jews and the Jewish people as the barakah, the blessing of the bread. And scholars would argue that today what Orthodox Jews say at the blessing of mealtime and at the blessing of bread is maybe close to what Jesus would have prayed when he took the bread and he blessed it. And it would go something like this. Blessed are you, Lord God, King of the universe, you bring forth bread from the earth. And then he took the cup and that blessing goes like this. Blessed are you, Lord God, King of the universe, you create the fruit of the vine. And he blessed it and he broke it 
And he handed it out and he said, divide it, break it, tear it, eat and drink. Now, the interesting thing is that in the Jewish mindset, because it was blessed, because the bread was blessed, everyone who was a participant in the meal received the blessing just by participating. That's what they thought. It's not the effort. It's not the moral character. It's not the worth of the participant. It's not whether we have failed or not failed. It's not, is the card clean or unclean? It's not the record. It's simply because Jesus blessed it and we participate in it and we receive a blessing. That's why a sacrament is special because it's the word of God over the elements. It's a Jewish meal. It's also a Passover feast. It's also a Passover feast. The Jews would celebrate Passover every year as a commemoration of what God did in the Exodus uh, in Egypt. You remember they were slaves for around 400 years. And then God sends Moses to Pharaoh and he pleads with them. This is the grace of God. He pleads with Pharaoh and he pleads with the officials. Let these people go. Let these people go. You've been mistreating them. You've been oppressing them. This is injustice. Let them go. Let them go. Let them go. You see, you have to read it carefully or else you get the wrong picture of God. And Pharaoh chooses not to. That's a lot of free labor. And he chooses not to. And so God says, okay, well, I'm going to send signs and I'm going to send judgments and I'm going to go to war with your gods and you're going to see that I'm a more powerful God until you let my people go. And one of the last things that God did was the judgment upon the firstborn. You remember it. And God said, I want you, Moses and Aaron, to instruct the people to take a lamb and to slaughter the lamb and to take a hyssop and a hyssop branch would have symbolized cleansing and healing and take that branch and dip it in the blood of the lamb and then you put it on the doorpost. And when the angel comes, the angel will look at the doorpost. And if there is blood on the doorpost, the angel will pass over will pass over and that family, that home will be covered from the judgment of God. Now imagine with me, if you will, you're walking down a street during Passover at that time and you come upon a house and you see there's blood on the door, but it's dark inside and it's very quiet. And you walk inside and there's no candles lit. There's no lamps lit. And you don't know where the family is, but you find them and they're huddled in a corner together and they're kind of trembling together. And you say, what's going on? And they say, well, it's Passover. We've done everything that God has said we should do. And we've covered the doorposts, but this is a serious summer night. And this is a judgment night and, and we're trembling together. And then you leave the house and you go to the next house and you can hear a different sound from outside of this house. The lights are on, sounds like there's music and dancing and you walk inside the front door and the whole house is lit and there's a table filled with food and there's people singing and dancing and you say, what's going on? And they say, well, we've done everything God required. There's blood on the doorpost, but this is a feast. This is a festival because guess what? We don't have to experience the judgment of God. And you leave that house. And I would ask you this morning, friends, is one house more saved than the other? The angel looked upon the blood. That was what mattered. Some of you carry heavy burdens, heavy wounds, maybe scars for your whole life, and you tremble and you're afraid. 
but God looks at the blood of Jesus. Some of you feel triumphant and there's a lot of dancing and singing. And guess what? God looks at the blood of Jesus. And they remembered Passover. And for every Seder dinner, as the Jews called it, there was a host to walk them, to guide them through this Passover commemoration. Make no mistake, friends, Jesus in communion is both host and meal. He is our gracious host and he's our food. He's our meal. Faye will come in just a few moments and she will bless the elements, but make no mistake, Jesus is our host present with us. What is the difference between something like a Passover and the institution of the Lord's Supper and communion? It's this, it is communion, not a commemoration. It's not simply a memorial. Hear me carefully. We're not here to meet with an absent Christ, but a Christ who is present through the power of the Holy Spirit and the promise of the word of God. As the song says, he is here, he is here, and he's moving among us. He is here, he is here. As we gather in his name, he is here, he is here, and he wants to work a wonder. He is here, he is here as we gather in his name. Now God is everywhere, you know this, I know this. And he's always attentive to us whether we forget him or not. He doesn't beat us up for that. And we can talk to him anytime, in any place, in any hour. And yet in communion, he is uniquely and especially present with us. But he's not the only one. He's not the only one, in fact I, I learned a bit this week. I had a lot of fun doing preparation for this sermon and I learned a bit and I want to read something and suggest something to you that he's not the only one present and we're not the only ones present in communion. I want to read a hymn, uh, a stanza of a hymn, if you will, number 711 for all the saints it's called and no, I will not sing it. <clears throat> it's stanza number four and there's a little asterisk by it and I looked down at the bottom and it said stanza four may be sung unaccompanied or acapella and it goes like this, listen carefully. Oh, blessed communion, fellowship divine, we feebly struggle, they in glory shine. Yet all are one in thee, for all are thine. Just a few weeks ago, we celebrated All Saints Day, where we remembered those who have passed on and gone to be present with the Lord. And I propose to you this, that all who have gone to be with the Lord, the closest we will ever be to having communion with the deceased loved ones in our life is in holy communion that we share together. Because both living and those who have passed on, saints are in Christ. And as the hymn has said, we are all one in him and Christ is present in communion and they are present in communion as we are present in communion. What a beautiful, beautiful truth to remember. So what happens in communion? What is God up to? It's a Jewish meal, it's a Passover feast, and those kind of scratch the surface at the depth and breadth of communion, but what is God doing? And firstly, it's this. In communion, we are made participants in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. 
in communion, God makes us participants of the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. Have you ever found yourself maybe signed up for something and you said to yourself, this is not what I signed up for? Ever been volunteered, perhaps by a spouse, and you show up and midway through you think to yourself, this is not what I signed up for. I uh, went to, me and an executive pastor friend of mine from St. Louis, from about 2016 to 19, uh, we went to Africa three years in a row, two different parts of Africa to train local pastors there. And uh, they were hungry and passionate, but they didn't have the funds to get education as it was expensive there. And so we came in to do some theological training. And uh, I just remember that I was not prepared for the amount of travel that we were going to experience. Our first trip over there, there were eight flights in 12 days. And I was not prepared for that. And it was brutal. I came back and my wife said, you are kind of a zombie. And I just was existing for two weeks. It took a while for my soul to catch back up to me. But our, our last trip, I remember, the last leg home, we leave Ethiopia, North Africa, at eight o'clock at night. And so you've been awake all day, you've been in Africa all day, you're dirty, you're sweaty, you're grimy, you just want to shower in a bed, but no, you're getting on a 16-hour flight. And so you get on the plane at 8 o'clock, and you have to go to Dublin to refuel. So you fly eight hours to Dublin, and then you land, and then you refuel, and you don't get off the plane, and then you have to fly another seven and a half or so hours to D.C. Well, I remember getting on this one particular flight. It's my last time over there, and after this time, I said, I don't think I'm going back for a while. I get on this flight, and I started to feel nauseous. And I thought to myself, I do not want to be sick on a 15-hour flight. And you know, I don't know about you, but when you start to feel sick to your stomach, I just want to lay down and not move at all. And so I did everything I could in that small little airplane seat to get comfortable and not move. I put my leg over in another person's uh, foot area and stretched that out. I was leaning this side and I put my seat back and tried to get a blanket and hold my head here. And I just tried to stay there the whole time. Halfway through the flight, an unparented child got loose, started running up and down the aisles, and uh, I was kind of dozing in and out with my eyes open and closed, and all of a sudden, I opened my eyes to this small child, couldn't be more than four years old, and he's looking at me face to face, and I startled me a little bit, and all of a sudden, he takes his pointer finger, and he just starts poking me in the forehead. <laughs> my friend who was with me starts laughing. And I start to think to myself, what can I get away with here? What can I do? What can I say? Uh, do, how do I call upon this kid's parents? And I think to myself, this is not what I signed up for. I did not sign up to be sick on a 15-hour flight with some young kid poking me in the forehead. <laughs> do we know all that we sign up for when we share in communion? Maybe we need to be Reminded, maybe there's some new truths for us here. 1 Corinthians 10, 14 through 17 says this. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people, judge for yourselves. I think that's true of us. I speak to sensible people, judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks, check it out, a participation in the blood of Christ. And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ. 
Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share the one loaf. We share the one loaf, the body of Christ. We are the body, the one body, the body of Christ, which is important, as I'll get to in just a moment. But notice two times Paul says, as we share in the cup and the bread, are we not participating in the body of Christ? Are we not participating in the blood of Christ? And when the, when the host of the meal takes the bread and blesses it and give thanks and breaks it, the breaking of the bread would have actually been symbolic for the whole entire meal. We are meant to conclude then, the implications are when the bread is broken, it's representative of the whole of the life of Christ, not just his death and resurrection, but his birth, his life, his love, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, we get to participate in that. Every time we share in communion, we are made participants in that. His life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, we share in all that Christ was, in all that Christ is, not of our own worth and effort. As the rich Anglican prayer said, I'm not worthy to receive you, but only say the word and I shall be healed. How fitting for today. In communion, we're made participants in his life, death, and resurrection, and communion creates community. Just Friday night, we did a scavenger hunt, and we sent out registrations for the scavenger hunt, and people registered, and then we sent them the rules, and then they showed up Friday night, and uh, we made little scorecards, and there were pictures on one side, and on the other side, there were clues with points allotted, and people had to go to these places that were uh, alluded to in the clues, and show up, and find it, and take a picture with their whole team in it, then they had to get back on time, and then they came back, and we had prizes for first, second, and third place, and there was people showing up on campus, there was a loud buzz and people were laughing and shouting and sharing stories. And all of a sudden I realized, oh, there's a, there's a community forming. There's a community forming around an event. There's a community forming and they're sharing stories together. You see, in the, in, in, when we take communion, it's not because we are a community necessarily that we take communion, that's true. But in the act of taking communion, it creates a community. It establishes a community. It constitutes a community. We become participants again in the new community that is called the church. This is important to remember because you're probably familiar with this text where the Corinthians get a sharp warning from Paul about what they're doing with the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven through 29 says this. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. What does he mean by discerning the body and examining themselves? He perhaps means taking communion flippantly, taking communion lightly, expecting the, the, the ritual and the ceremony in and of itself to do everything and showing up with no faith. Perhaps he means that. It's certainly not less than that, but I would argue in the context, it's much, much more than that. In fact, we're given a little bit of hint of what's going on because 
Uh, the church in Corinth is having uh, what they called love feasts and they would take communion at it, but it's like a potluck. It's like a church potluck. Are you ready to get back to some of those? That'd be fantastic. A potluck. And so they're having these feasts and what's going on is the wealthy in the church and the more privileged in the church are able to get there earlier. And so they're starting to feast without the rest of the participants in the church. And the working class or even the slaves who were in the Roman Empire couldn't show up until later because they didn't have that privilege and they would show up later and there was no food left and the participants were already drunk. Look in the passage, it's there. And Paul says to them, I say this to your shame. So what is he getting at? What is, what is he saying by they need to discern the body and examine themselves? This is what he's saying. He's saying you're trying to split the body of Christ from the body of Christ and you can't do it because this is the body of Christ. As he just said earlier, there's one loaf and one body. There's one body and one body. The body of Christ is the church. And so when we sin against each other, when we violate another's conscience or transgress another's body or emotional boundary, or spiritual boundary, and we sow disunity and discord and gossip and slander, and then we come to the table. This is what Paul's saying. You're trying to split the body and you can't do it. Do not fail to discern the body of Christ. That's what he means. Jesus loves reconciliation so much, he put it ahead of worship. In Matthew 5, he says, if you have something against your brother, if your brother has something against you, if your sister has something against you, before you go to the altar, go seek reconciliation. This is what's going on. Why? Because Christ indwells the community of faith. To sin against another is to sin against Christ. To wound another image bearer is to wound Christ himself. And he says, I want you to examine the body as you take communion. So you won't have an opportunity this morning, but maybe afterwards there's someone that you might need to seek reconciliation with. I close with this great truth that we celebrate. Because we are the body of Christ, because we have been placed in community with each other, and because it's Christ, the gracious host, and the food who gives himself at the meal, because all this is true, all are welcome at the table. All are welcome at the table. Everyone's welcome at the table. If you happen to look through different liturgies of different denominations and different book of, books of order or books of discipline, you will find around the conversation of communion a question about something like this. What, who is qualified to come to the table? I don't think it's a bad conversation. I just don't think it's where we should start because in the midst of all of those words about what we have to do and who we have to be to come to the table, I go back to the text in the scriptures and I remember Jesus fed Judas. Jesus fed Judas and Jesus fed Peter with his spiritual pride and misplaced passion and Jesus fed Thomas with all of his doubts and all of his questions and Jesus fed Simon the zealot the political activist who was prone to violence and Jesus fed James and John, the sons of thunder, with all their condemning judgment, who said, do you want us to call down lightning on them? They're not like us. And Jesus fed Judas, the betrayer. That's good news, friends. It's good news for me, because I am they. With my pride, 
with my verbal violence, with my misplaced passion, with my doubts. And if sin is betrayal, then with my betrayal. I am they and we are they. And we're all welcome at the table because it's not about the strength of your faith, it's about strengthening your faith. It's not about the extent of your repentance, but the extent God has gone to forgive your sins. Communion is about God's desire to meet with his people and feed our hungry and aching and thirsting souls. He is worthy and he makes us worthy. Would you pray with me? Father, we're so grateful. We're so grateful for the good news of Christ. And we can't earn it and we can't deserve it. But you bestow upon us your unconditional, sheer grace through him. And we receive it. Father, in just a few moments, all of these things and even more that we couldn't talk about today are true because of you, because your promise and because of your Holy Spirit. We know you'll feed us. We know you'll fill us. We know that we will experience your healing. We thank you for all these things and our hearts are filled with gratitude. And it's in Christ's name that we pray, amen.